0: Bibles and let's go back to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 this morning. I would encourage you if you're a member of our church family to uh, make tonight a priority. We are voting um, on the proposed constitution. Um, We're excited for this change. We believe the Lord has been leading us this direction. We've been talking about it for many months now um, and I pray that you will come and Um, That we will see God work among us as we seek to refine how we're governing more and more according to his word. We'll look and read verses 3 through 11 in just a moment. Does God give us, does his word give us any direction as to how we should be praying for one another? Have you ever considered that question before? What is informing the way that you pray for other believers? And this would include those that are in our own homes. Those that are coworkers that know Christ. Those in our life group, our community group, our church family as a whole. What informs the way that you pray for those believers? How are we to be praying for them? Now, there are certainly lots of different things we could pray for one another. I believe this passage shows us that while we should certainly be bearing one another's burdens in prayer, we're not saying that's wrong at all. We want to let the priority that Scripture lays before us become our priorities. I think Paul is setting before us a way to pray priorities in prayer that we need to embrace wholeheartedly. How should we pray? Just very shortly, succinctly, we should pray for one another's spiritual growth. How are we to pray for one another? We are to pray for spiritual maturity. Consider all the things that this little church plant in Philippi is facing. Their church planter is in prison for sharing the gospel. And they're facing those same kinds of persecutions. That same kind of opposition. We just heard from Acts 16 in the founding of this church. There's in this church now a Philippian jailer. They're in a city filled with Roman occupiers. It's a Roman colony. They're not favorable to the gospel. Paul says that they are to stand firm together in one spirit. We also know that in this community, there are false teachers. In chapter 3, there are those that are emphasizing unbiblical, legalistic requirements to obeying and following God. Paul writes Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So wouldn't it be good for them to pray that God would protect them from false teaching? Again, we're certainly not saying that would be wrong. This church is also struggling with unity, humility, and love for one another. A well-known disagreement has surfaced in this church such that Paul has to admonish them publicly in this letter. This is going to be read before everyone that gets this letter as it's spread throughout these churches. Paul admonishes two women to agree in the Lord. In this opening prayer, he could have said, I'm praying for that. Instead, Paul prays for their spiritual growth and here's the idea this will affect every other area that we've just mentioned this will shape all of these issues and needs in their lives it addresses what really needs to be addressed in their hearts so in spite of all the different requests he could have focused on he focuses on their spiritual growth toward greater maturity in christ Now these are dearly beloved brothers and sisters that have a genuine walk with the Lord. But Paul's prayer tells us they need to keep growing. And this is the priority. They need to embrace the mind of Christ that provides them with stability against opposition, humility with one another, and a focus on the right priorities in life. What we see is the same is true for us. We fill our prayer requests with all kinds of things. And I'm not saying those are wrong in any way. But I would want our mind to be shaped by the scriptures. By what the Holy Spirit has included for us. And say, is there something even more important? Or should be at the top, rather, of our prayer list. This passage provides us with a pattern of how we should be praying. Let's look at our text And then we'll ask for God's help in prayer. Verse 3, this is God's word to us, his people. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that you may approve or choose what is excellent. And so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks into our life. It speaks into our walk with you. Lord, we're so thankful for the example we have in Paul in this letter, for his passion for the gospel, for this Christ-like mindset that he encourages us to embrace. Lord, I pray that this Christ-like mind would fill our minds and shape how we pray for one another. Lord, you have the right to reorient our prayer lives. You have the right to reorient every priority in our lives. And we pray that we would submit to you as you seek to do that. As we seek to be molded by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The content of Paul's prayer in these three verses teaches us that we must keep growing in discerning love so that our fruitful lives give glory to God. We must keep growing in discerning love so that our fruitful lives give glory to God. Now, what the Spirit wants you and I to be convinced of, why this prayer is recorded for us and every believer who's read it since, is that we need to pray for each other's spiritual growth. This is a way that we invest in one another. This is a vital way that we often neglect in investing in one another. Your spouse and your children need your specific prayers for their spiritual maturity. I'm convinced this is a prayer that I need to be praying for you and that I want you to be praying for me. Of all the requests for which I would ask prayer, I need prayer for growth toward spiritual maturity. That will shape everything else that I do, that will shape every aspect of my life as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. Do you see, that's what Paul is trying to convince us of. This relationship is the most important. If I'm growing closer to him, it will affect everything else that I do in life. This doesn't mean that praying for other requests is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not unhelpful. But it seems to me that as I studied this prayer from Philippians and the other prayers that Paul writes In the New Testament, he prays this way. This is a recurring theme, that God's people would grow up. It's what he wants for himself. He loves God, is sacrificially serving him. And yet in chapter 3, he says he wants to know him even more. He writes in 3, 14, and 15, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said just before this that I would know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul knows these things mentally. He lived in an era where he could talk to those witnesses. He wants to know Christ as a person. And he concludes in verse 15, let those of us who are mature have this same mind. Because knowing and loving Christ is truly Paul's priorities, his prayers are shaped by that passion. What do our prayers reveal we are most passionate about? Think of that question. What have you prayed about in the last week The last day, the last month. Who do your prayers reveal you are most passionate about? This text calls us to pray for spiritual growth in Christ's likeness. Very often, our prayers are shallow and even often unknowingly self centered. In his excellent book on prayer, Timothy Keller observes it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Does that surprise you at all? Do our prayers sound like Paul's? I know I want to grow in thinking and praying with this mindset to see my needs, my family needs, and your needs as more significant than just a change of circumstances. That God would enable me to see the spiritual work happening through those circumstances. We're called here to embrace a biblical model of prayer. So let's take a closer look at these three verses and seek to grow together in our prayer lives. Now, these three verses are one sentence in Greek. For some reason, the Holy Spirit wants Paul to write it this way, and this is a challenging sentence. This takes some work to understand and unpack. He stacks one phrase on top of the other. You're not sure how they all work together, except that we study, and we examine, and we think carefully. And I think if we truly engage our hearts and minds to understand what God would teach us about prayer this morning, I believe we will again be both convicted and encouraged. In verses 3 through 8, we've seen Paul's prayer was filled with thanksgiving for these brothers and sisters. This partnership that was made and brought together through the gospel. Now in verses 9 through 11, we come to the content of his prayer for them. Notice the pronouns change a little bit. He talks about you, you all, you Philippians. I'm praying for you now. He prays that they would mature. Now the way this passage functions is kind of like stair steps. It keeps moving up or a scaffolding. You go up level by level. We see this in how the passage ends with God being glorified. We see it in the two so that's in verse 10. So this morning, we're going to consider three aspects of Paul's prayer the content, the purpose, and the goal of this prayer. First, the content of Paul's prayer growth in discerning love. Now, perhaps the first thing we can notice is that Paul is intentionally telling the Philippians what he is praying for, what he's praying for them. Paul regularly tells the churches to whom he is writing how he's praying for them. I think that's a good lesson or application for us right off the bat. Consider how encouraging it would be to share with your loved ones in your family or in your church family how you are praying for them. I prayed this for you today. You could send in a text. Now, this might be challenging because it's a little bit uncomfortable. We don't maybe do this as often as we should, but it's immensely practical. Encourage others by telling them that you're praying for them and telling them what you're praying for them. Paul writes, he's praying that their love may abound more and more. Now, for whom are they to be growing in love? Their love for whom? Verse 9 doesn't provide us with a specific answer. But I think it's right to conclude that it's both love for God and their fellow believer. It certainly has to include the second. But in chapter 2, he's going to encourage them that as they have all been recipients of Christ's love, they're to show that same kind of love to one another. He writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. You know the greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. But this biblical kind of love is not the popular sentimental love characterized by modern pop songs or a teenage crush. We know that. This is the love of Christ who chooses who sacrifices, who shows commitment for the benefit of the person being loved. This is a caring, self-sacrificing commitment that seeks the highest good of the one loved. This is how we're to strive to love one another, Paul Paul tells us. This is what Christ-like love looks like in the book of Philippians. Now I want us to notice that Paul is not rebuking. Or correcting the Philippians for something that they aren't doing at all. For something that they lack. For something they don't know. He's encouraging the love that's already there. The love for God and others to abound and increase more and more. Far from being a static reality that doesn't change or grow. Biblical love is something that grows over time. And overflows into our thoughts and our words and our actions more and more. Paul's saying, you're a loving people. You need to grow even more in this. Their love for God and for one another is being challenged by their circumstances. But love for Christ and for one another would stabilize them as that faith is challenged. It would help them set aside selfishness and pride. We need to pray that our love for one another would grow as a direct result of the growth of our love for Christ. We saw that last week. If we're, going to, if we're going to accept, embrace this partnership, this commitment to serve one another, that can only come as we're connected to the grace of Christ in our life. Let's be honest. It's hard to love other believers. It's hard to give up my priorities for somebody else. It's hard to love people who do not think and act in all the ways that we would like. It's easier to keep them at an arm's distance. It's hard to love selfish sinners. Because we are selfish sinners. Churches in the New Testament aren't characterized as perfect places with completely nice and cleaned up people. There's no letter that's written to any church that's doing just perfectly. Churches in the New Testament are filled with people who need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we admit that that we are still sinners, we remove that charge of hypocrisy that so many level against the church. We don't claim to be all cleaned up, all fixed up. But if we're to be an accurate reflection of who God has saved us to be, we can't stay stagnant in our love. We must grow. Secondly, in verse 9, their love is to be accompanied and shaped by knowledge and all discernment or depth of insight. Paul prays not only that they would have an increasing love, but also a discriminating love. The word for knowledge here is not focused on mastering a set amount of information. The word is relational. This is the kind of knowledge that comes from experience or personal relationship. Picture in your mind the married couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. They have a knowledge of one another that the couple at the wedding altar are striving toward. That they can barely even conceive of. This couple of 50 years have experienced life together. Many, many ups and downs. They know each other. Paul's praying that the Philippians would know God for themselves by walking with him day after day after day. Think of how love and discernment grow together. A husband's love for his wife and a wife's love for her husband deepens as they grow in their knowledge of one another. You can't love somebody you don't know. D.A. Carson explains the ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be discriminating. It is to be constrained or held together by knowledge and depth of insight. Without the constraints of knowledge and insight, love very easily degenerates into immature sentimentality or into the kind of mushy pluralism that the world often confuses with love. Biblical love's priority isn't to affirm everything someone thinks or feels or does. Think about how our world confuses this. Don't set any limits on what I love. On who I say I am. If you love me, you'll affirm everything I think and say and do. But biblical love is constrained by the truth. It leads to the best ends. So Paul prays that their love would increase along with discernment. If we would love God as we should, if our love for him would grow, we must grow in our knowledge of him. You can't separate the two. You see, love and knowledge are never pitted against one another in Scripture. They never stand in contrast to each other. Neither Jesus nor Paul emphasizes one to the exclusion of the other. They always, always go together. Greater knowledge leads to deeper love. So you cannot deeply love someone you don't know. And that's why Paul's encouraging these believers this way. Now notice, it's important for us, even as we think of this, that again, we're not trying to stir this up amongst ourselves as if we could do that. Paul is praying for this. He's expressing dependence on God to do something he cannot do on his own. Second, we see the purpose of Paul's prayer, choosing excellence in order to be blameless. In verse 10, we truly begin to see the stair steps of the text. Paul's praying that they would grow in their love for God and one another with knowledge and discernment in order that they would be able to choose what is excellent or vital or best. In the Christian life, there are certainly some things that matter a great deal and there are other things that do not Paul is praying that they would choose the best things in life to invest their time and energy and resources in. So just think of this. We all have a myriad of choices each day. We all have the same amount of time. We make choices in how we use those time, use that time, but what shapes your choices? One author asks, what do you do with your time? How many hours a week do you spend with your children? What shapes your choice of words to your children? Have you spent any time in the past two months witnessing to someone? How much time have you spent in the past two months watching television or some other form of entertainment? What shaped those choices? Are you committed in your use of time to what Paul says here, to what is best? Or vital or excellent? What have you read, either books or social media posts, in the past six months? Are you committed in your reading habits to what is excellent? How are your relationships within your family? Do you ever pause to consider what you can do to strengthen your relationships with your spouse or your children? Do you make time for personal prayer? How do you decide what to do with your money? Do you give a set percentage, say 10% of your income, and then the rest is yours? Or do you regard yourself as the Lord's steward and ask his direction for how you spend all of his money that he has given to you? Are you choosing excellence with your money? Is your reading and studying of the Bible so improving your knowledge of God that your wholehearted worship of the Almighty is growing in spontaneity, devotion, and joy? Behind all of these choices or answers are your choices. How you've answered each one of them tells you whether you're choosing what is excellent with your time, with your life, or maybe something lesser. Not even something wrong, but not the priority? Is our love growing more and more? And is it shaped by the priorities we learn in God's word? As we do that, we will be making very different choices than the ones we often make, won't we? I'm sure if you're like me and you listen carefully to the choices described, there are several you wish you could change. There are several. If you're honest, you're not choosing excellently. We want to be making truly excellent choices as our love for God, as our commitment to him and others grows. We'll do different things than we're doing. We will prioritize loving God and others in each of these aspects of our life. Paul encourages each follower of Christ to examine his own life then. To what extent do I pray for things judged excellent in God's eyes, both for myself and for those around me? Is it right to always pray for our loved ones that God would move the trial or the hardship out of their life? Or would it be more honoring to the Lord, more biblical to pray that God would give them endurance through that trial? Do I pray that my love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so I can distinguish between what is merely passable or what is excellent? Between what is merely acceptable or what is best? Do I pray this for my church family? Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, the difficulty in life is to know on what we ought to concentrate. The whole art of life, I sometimes think, he says, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, what to put to the side. How prone we are to dissipate our energies, to waste our time by forgetting what is vital and giving ourselves to second and third rate issues. You see why Paul makes this his priority in praying for the Philippians? This is a struggle for believers, isn't it? Pray that you would grow in your understanding of what is best, that you choose those best things. The stair steps of these verses then next lead us to the end of verse 10. The purpose of our growth in discerning love that rightly prioritizes what is excellent leads us then, leaves us prepared to meet Our king. He writes, and so be pure or whole and blameless without stumbling for the day of Christ. We're going somewhere in this life. There's someone we're scheduled to meet. We're to be prepared to meet him. He turns, Paul turns our minds to the future reality that we will one day stand before king jesus he wants the philippians to be prepared for that day he reminds them that that day is coming he's already told them that god is at work for that day in verse six when we see our king what will we have spent our lives investing in what will our character be revealed to be on that day will it matter that you finish that whole show you were interested in watching you accomplished that project. You filled that bank account. Will we be grateful for how we have lived or regretful? Will we have invested in the lives of others as Paul models here? Will we have spent our lives on what truly matters? The word for pure comes from a Greek word that means to be judged by the sun. A genuine clay vessel in the first century could be held up to the sun and a truly good vessel, no cracks could be seen in the sunlight. It was whole. It was pure. It was authentic, without blemish or defect. We should pray that we would be fully prepared to meet him on the day of Christ. Third, finally, the goal of Paul's prayer God's glory through Christ's work in us. Paul continues in verse 11 praying that on that day they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. They're to be living a life of righteousness in the present, right now, filling up that fruit basket in order to be filled with the fruit of righteousness when He comes. We are becoming today what we will be then. Now what does it mean, the fruit of righteousness? This is the fruit that consists of righteousness of those who truly know Christ. This is the work that if you truly love him, you will be doing. Someone who knows Christ and knows his sacrifice will follow him. Will invest similarly as he invested, Paul says, and models. Will say other people are important for me to spend time with to help prepare them to meet Christ on that day. These good works are things like growing in humility and self-sacrifice, other-centered service. It looks like endurance through suffering and even persecution with confident faith in God's sovereignty. And we should notice as well that this fruit comes through Christ. It's not our own. And fruit then is the perfect word choice and illustration of what Paul intends for us to be. Healthy fruit comes from healthy plants or trees that are well watered and cared for. Good fruit can only be produced from a tree with a healthy root system. Jesus says in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. What fruit can be attributed to Christ that is seen in your life? What words and actions and thoughts and even life direction? If we're producing truly spiritual fruit, then all the glory rightly goes only to God. We're not talking about mere religious performance. We're not talking about cleaning ourselves up on the outside and acting a certain way talking about gospel-produced good works. Paul's affirming again that we're transformed from the inside out. God gets the glory, and we're fine with that because it's what Christ is producing in us. And yet we have responsibility to prioritize growth in godliness. We're to put forth disciplined, consistent effort toward our growth. Pray. Paul teaches us to pray That you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that only Christ can produce in and through you for his glory alone. Now this passage encourages us to pray. To pray more faithfully. To pray with greater intentionality. Any sermon on prayer is often very convicting because for many of us it's a neglected spiritual discipline. It can sometimes be an afterthought in our Christian walk. Surveys among Christians reveal that most believers pray less than 10 minutes a day. Would that be about the average for you? What do you think that means? Perhaps, as most said, that they prayed only 10 minutes a day or less, express that they're dissatisfied with their prayer life. And perhaps you can relate to that dissatisfaction. Could I encourage you then again to turn your heart to the Lord? as you recognize your need to grow in this area? If prayer is the breath of dependence, prayerlessness is confirmation of an independent spirit, of pride, of functional pride, of functional self-reliance. Sometimes we don't even recognize that's what we're doing. But that's the truth, isn't it? It reveals that we may functionally believe we don't need his grace as much as we might even say we do. So first, turn to him in repentance and then ask for his help to make prayer a greater priority in your daily life. And what challenges challenges me so much in this prayer is Paul's focus on the spiritual growth and maturity of this church body. Again, think of all the other things he could have prayed for or talked about. He could have given his requests. Again, he's in prison. But he's convinced that this is what they need more than so many other things that he could have prayed for. This is the priority in Paul's mind. So often our prayers get stuck focused on only our material or temporal circumstances. It's not wrong to ask God to provide your daily bread. But that should honestly just be a fraction of what we pray for. We need to take Paul's example to heart and prioritize prayer for spiritual growth in our own lives and in the lives of our church family. This takes careful thought. It takes disciplined effort. I readily, readily confess that though I pray regularly, I need and want to grow in this way. I want to be shaped by Paul's thinking, by what the Spirit has inspired him to say. I'm challenged by this text to be more focused on what matters most in prayer. The text challenges us to let Paul's prayer for spiritual growth shape your own prayers for your life and your church family. Could I recommend you use this verse as a pattern for how to pray? How to pray for your spouse, for your children, for your friends, for your church family? You're going to have to think through this carefully. You're going to have to meditate on this text. You're going to have to understand it. You're going to have to own it. And then pray that their love for God would increase. Pray that their love would be marked by wisdom and discernment so that they would know what to prioritize. So that they would choose what is biblically excellent. We make time to do what we truly want to do, don't we? We need God's grace to change what we want to do. If we loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, wouldn't we prioritize our lives a lot differently? We need prayer to help change those priorities. Pray for your loved ones that they would mature in fruitfulness, that they would be ready to meet King Jesus and have a life filled with righteous fruit when they meet him that would honor and glorify our God. So may our Lord continue to shape and refine our prayers for his glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we confess that we need to grow in this area. We confess that we are highly individualistic. We are prone to self-centeredness We are prone to independence. We are prone to self-dependence. Lord, we so often think we know what we need to do to fix our circumstances, as if that's truly the priority. Lord, may we allow you and your word to reshape our priorities. That our desire would be to choose things that you decide are excellent. That would honor you and bring glory to your name. That would be fruits of righteousness. That Christ is working in us. That we could take no credit for how you're using us. That we would again see ourselves as slaves of Christ investing in his mission. Lord, so often the greatest danger to our spiritual lives is comfort and ease. The blessings and abundance that you've provided to us. We believe we have no need of anything, even of you. Lord, I pray that you would reorient our priorities according to your word. Help us to grow independence. Help us to honor you. Help us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness that only you can produce. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.